Isaiah 61, starting at verse 1, page 864. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn and to provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Aliens will shepherd your flocks. Foreigners will work your fields and vineyards. And you will be called priests of the Lord. You will be named ministers of our God. You will feed on the wealth of nations and in their riches you will boast. Because their shame was double and dishonor was proclaimed as their lot. Therefore, they shall possess a double portion. Everlasting joy shall be theirs. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. I will faithfully give them their recompense. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their descendants shall be known among the nations and their offspring among the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge that they are a people whom the Lord has blessed. Those words were written to a people far away from their homeland in exile without everything that they'd hoped for. And they're a promise that God will put things right. Now, our second reading is Matthew 5. Now, when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So all of us would like to know the secret of the truly happy life, the life that in the long run leads to true contentment, the life that you can look back on with genuine, deep satisfaction. Uh, The secret of living that in a world which is full of grief and illness and pain is doubly important. Jesus is talking about that kind of life here. These words, the the Beatitudes, some of Jesus' most famous words, um, called Beatitudes, a word for blessing, they all each begin, blessed are. 
Um, he's telling us who the truly blessed people are. Now, you know, we can skim over that word, blessed, as a sort of generic, feel-good religious word. But it's very important. Um, sometimes people translate it as happy are. And that makes some sense. This is about the truly happy life, not in the sense of cheerfulness, uh, superficial feelings, that would be daft. You know, the second of them says, blessed are those who mourn. It's not saying cheerful are those who are sad. That would be silly. But it is about real, lasting happiness and contentment, the kind of life that is really good. You know, if, if life is really good for us, we might say, I'm, I'm a lucky woman or I'm a lucky guy. We think of ourselves as fortunate. The, the word that people in ancient times used would be blessed for that same occasion. I'm, a, I'm blessed. If you were an ancient Greek or Roman philosopher, you wanted to teach people what the good life is, you'd say, do it in these terms. You'd say, blessed are the people who so-and-so. In modern terms, it's about true well-being. You know, everyone wants to have greater, deeper well-being, a life that is deep down healthy, joyful, and good. So this is Jesus' teaching about the truly good life, what we should aim for if we want a good life, a satisfying life, ultimately, a happy life. As soon as we say that, though, we do run up against the paradox of what he says. It doesn't sound like the good life. And blessed are those who mourn is the first example there. Jesus is teaching us that the good life is very different from what we naturally think it is. In fact, it's worlds away from what the world tries to teach us. It's worlds away from our own instincts. It's something so different that Embarking on it is an act of faith and trust in Jesus. It turns the world and it's all its values upside down. Now, to really get at what Jesus is doing here, we need to step back a moment and see the big picture in Matthew's gospel. Jesus has just begun his ministry, his mission. He's, he's begun to preach. And he preaches in these words, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, change your direction of life. Turn around because God's kingdom, God's rule through his king is coming close. Now, the more I look at the Beatitudes, the more I think this verse is actually key to understanding what he's doing in them. When the future is different, the good life in right now changes. Let me give a really superficial example. We might think, blessed are those who have uncluttered homes because they will have a nice, relaxing peace of mind. If, on the other hand, it's two years ago, or three years ago, whenever it was, and Boris is going to come on the TV tomorrow night and announce lockdown, you are not going to feel blessed for having an uncluttered home. You're going to feel blessed if you're a hoarder who has enough lural that you're not going to need to panic. The future that is coming changes what the really good life right now is. Jesus is saying, my kingdom's near, right at the door, it's coming. In certain ways, in fact, it's already present. Now, God, of course, is always in charge. He always rules. He always governs the universe. But he does it in such a way that when evil happens, he ultimately, in the end, turns it to good. But right now, in the moment, we can do things that are evil and wrong. And one day, he's saying, the kingdom is coming in such a way that that is no longer the case. Evil will be exiled, destroyed, swept away, and the inhabitants of God's kingdom will live in glad obedience to his commands. And in the here and now, Christians are people who choose to live under his rule as part of that coming kingdom already. That makes a big difference to how you live. And so Jesus calls his first disciples at the end of chapter 4. And at the start of chapter 5, 
He calls them, come follow me. He started with chapter 5. He calls them up to him so that he can teach them. Now, there are crowds everywhere. People are, are fascinated following this amazing healer, Jesus. But he wants the people who are coming to follow him to come and understand what this life of repentance, of discipleship, is going to look like. And so his disciples come to him. Now, you see that uh, as well at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in uh, 7.28. He's saying it to his disciples. The crowds are listening in. So they're amazed by his teaching. But this teaching is for his disciples. So it's a, a calling to everyone to listen to what this life of discipleship is like, which hopefully will invite some of those crowds in. But at the same time, it's a teaching for those who are already following him. This teaching that is for his disciples um, is the life that he calls them to. It's the life he calls us to. And he is saying, blessed are those who repent, who believe in me, who follow me in this way. And he's saying that life is blessed. Um, Sometimes we are tempted, or people are tempted to say, think that the life Jesus calls us to is the very opposite of blessed, that it's a miserable life, that it's a life of giving up everything good for the future. But he says, no, 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 it's, it's much, much more than that. It does depend on the future, but it is ultimately the good and the satisfying life, the life that we will look back on with deep satisfaction, and even in the present, one that is full of satisfactions. Now, the, the Beatitudes, in a sense, are a sort of U-shaped teaching. They start with four teachings that, in a sense, take us downwards. They're, they they're strip us of our self-confidence, our pride, things like that. And then on the other side, they go up as we're filled with new characters, new qualities. Um, we're going to look at the first half today, three to six. Um, we discover the way down is the way up. And looking at these, these four Beatitudes in order, the poverty, mourning, meekness, and hungering. So firstly, Jesus begins with poverty, with need. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Just to point out the obvious, this is paradoxical. They're the people who have the thing that is worth most in the universe are the poor, the poor in spirit. It's the opposite of the people who are rich, who are self-satisfied in spirit. The people who think, I have everything, I need nothing, and I don't need God. That's the opposite of being poor in spirit. All through the Old Testament, the poor are talked about as people who are hard-pressed and struggling, oppressed. So they rely on God because they've got no other option. And that's what poverty is like, isn't it? You, know, you have no options. If you take a really rich person strip away all their possessions, empty their bank account, leave them on the street. They actually still have contacts, they have skills, they have possessions, they have education, they've got options. A really poor person, someone right at the bottom, has nowhere to turn except for God. That's how King David, um, the, the psalm writer, describes himself. It's a, it's a really dark moment in his life. He's exile, in exile, he's desperate, he's penniless, he's in a strange land, and he says, this poor man called, and the Lord heard me heard him. He saved him out of all his troubles. Now, of course, you can be desperately poor and full of pride and anger and blaming people around you. Uh, you can be rich and proud in spirit, in other words, when you have nothing in the bank. But, and equally, I've known some stupendously wealthy people who were full of self-sacrificial reliance on God. But Jesus uses poverty as a sort of example here for a reason. You know, I worked with the homeless for a while, and there are very few atheists on the street. <laughs> Very, very few atheists on the street. Not to say they're all Christians, 
But when you hit rock bottom, you start to turn somewhere else for help. And Jesus describes his own mission in that reading from Isaiah we, we heard earlier as to preach good news to the poor. And the poor in spirit are those who see they need that good news, who come to him empty-handed. They come to him in the words of, of the old song, perhaps, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Being poor in spirit is coming to God with nothing. Not trying to buy your way into his kingdom with what you've done. With pride in what you are or the effort you promise for his service. Or even the fact that you come to church or pray or any of that. But you come empty to be filled by him. It's like the, I met a lady on Thursday. Uh, she lived for many years a life of real desperation, uh, addiction, pain. And then she became a Christian, really rather out of the blue. And she is full of overwhelming joy and delight. And it's very obvious when you talk to her. Um, God loved her, someone who brought nothing to the table, someone who'd done so many things she thought were utterly unforgivable. He loved her. Gave himself, his son, for her. Counted her worthy of his kingdom. And, you know, you can see her frustration at the rest of us when we so easily take God's love for granted, that incredible, overwhelming love that he was willing to give everything for us. And Jesus is saying that's real well-being, that's real blessing, is to be poor in spirit. Because then you see God's need and you look instead, not to yourself, but to his kingdom to his kingdom. He's saying, my kingdom belongs to those who know their need, who don't think they can earn their way into it. If you're willing to come empty-handed, my kingdom is yours. Secondly, mourning. Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn. There is a kind of grief that flows from being poor in spirit. Um, if we know we have nothing to offer, especially if we realize we are spiritually bankrupt, that we are morally empty and corrupt, and we also realize that there is evil in the world and we cannot defeat it, then there is a kind of mourning that comes from that. When we look at the everyday pains and sorrows of human life and face them honestly, there is a real grief that comes from that as well. That's why Jesus himself wept. He wept... Um, when faced with the death of a dear friend, he wept when he saw Jerusalem fail to repent and turn back to him and, and knew that carrying on in the path they were, they were on would lead to their destruction. So Jesus too knew grief. But this grief will not last forever. Mourning, in this sense, again, is the opposite of a kind of self-satisfaction or alternatively, a kind of hard cynicism. And that's really easy, actually, isn't it? You know, if you watch the news constantly, it's easy to just become hardened and cynical and not feel the reality of things that are wrong in the world. Um, it can be very easy just not to cope with them anymore. Um, I think of some people who are really exposed to the front line of pain in the world. I, I think even just of, of teachers. So I, I know more than one person who has gone into the teaching profession and seeing the suffering of some of the kids, seeing what some of the parents do to some of the kids, it's just been emotionally too much for them to cope with. And the choice was either be hardened or leave. 
that Jesus says, when you know comfort is coming, you can face these things with the right kind of mourning, not a hopeless one, but a mourning that looks forward to real comfort. You know, back in Isaiah 61, again, you know, when Jesus said I, I, that he came to declare good news to the poor, he also said he came to comfort all who mourn, to provide for those who grieve. In those days, if you were mourning, whether because you lost someone or if you were sorry for an awful thing you've done, you took off your good clothes, you put on sackcloth, sack and ashes. You wanted to show on the outside how you felt. And Jesus says, I'm, I came to, to lift them up to give them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair, to replace grief with joy, in other words. Paul in Romans says that we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. We're waiting, we're longing for that comfort. When we are adopted as his sons forever, with bodies made new, Jesus is saying, real repentance involves grief. Perhaps most of all, at our own failures and the wrong in our own heart. But grief at this broken world. And the truly blessed life doesn't come from denying that. It doesn't come from shoving the pain under the carpet. It doesn't come either from just distracting ourselves with different pleasures, from putting the TV on and shutting the world out, retreating into our shell. It comes from accepting the reality of that grief and then trusting, looking forward to the day when he will comfort us in it. Then Jesus comes to meekness. If you are poor in spirit, in other words, you don't think you're on top, you don't think you're the best, you don't think you have all the answers, and you're mourning, you see what's wrong with your own self and you see what's wrong with the world, that changes what you're like on the outside. Uh, someone who feels all of that will be gentle to others. They will be meek, in other words. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. A person like that won't be pushy or manipulative or bullshy when someone wrongs them. They won't be always trying to get their own back. They will understand when people fail and do wrong because they know that they themselves have done wrong as well to others. They'll have a deeply gentle and gracious way of dealing with other people. Because they know they've got the same wrongs in their own heart and the same pains on other people's lives as they do. And that's what meekness is about. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, a great preacher, put it this way, you know, meekness is essentially a true view of yourself. Because the man who's truly meek is the one who's truly amazed that God and man can think of him as well as they do and treat him as well as they do. In other words, the person who is grateful for all the good, considering what they know they're like on the inside. Now, just to state the obvious, our society encourages us to do exactly the opposite, to demand our rights, to be strong people. And often, the people who get ahead in the world are the ones with sharp elbows, aren't they? Who push their way ahead, who won't let anyone hurt them, or they'll hurt them back. They're often the people who get everything. But Jesus is saying, that will not always be the way. The meek will inherit the earth. God will give them the whole earth. In a world without God, the meek lose. They're on the bottom forever. But if he's real, if his kingdom is real, that is not the case. They will inherit the earth. Jesus is actually quoting an old psalm from the Old Testament here. You know, don't worry about evil men. Don't be envious of those who do wrong. 
be still before the Lord. Wait for him to sort things out. Why? Because in the end, the meek will inherit the land. The wicked will be gone and the meek will inherit the land. Some of the most difficult pastoral conversations I've had have been with people who have come to me and said, look, I, I, I've heard about, I've, I've heard this gospel, but I'm not sure I can be a Christian because of the things that people have done to me, whether that's abuse or, and I think particularly of um, some of the people I've known from Iran and Kurdistan who they look and they've had their families wiped out by the government or their brother has been disappeared and never heard from again. You know, people who have real reason for anger with the world on a level that most of us just never quite face. And they say, you know, how can I forgive that? God demands I forgive that. How can I possibly leave that? And, of course, if they don't, they're eaten up with anger and, and, and bitterness and grief. And, you know, when you're a pastor, you can't always relate directly in your own experience. I can't say, oh... Well, this is how I did it when my family was wiped out because my family hasn't been killed in a genocide. But God's word does give real hope. The Bible says justice is coming. It says that we're to leave justice to God and in a little while the wicked will be no more. Now we, we want, we long as Christians for everyone, all the wickedest people on earth to come and, and repent and, and, and know real forgiveness. But when they don't, justice is coming. And when you feel that deep down, you can become meek. And not only have I seen that enable people to put things behind them, to forgive, to lay the past to rest, I've seen that actually transform people from those bitter, grief-filled people to people who are at ease, at peace, and therefore able to be meek and gentle in their relationships with others. Able to put away all the anger and hatred and burning for revenge. To become people who are truly healed and able to be meek, to enjoy real peace. The final attitude we look at this week is that it's hunger. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. You know, the poor in spirit are empty. They are needy. The mourning are people who have pain now and they don't have what they're longing for. And one of the things they're mourning about is the wrong in their own hearts and lives. And the meek are gentle, but they are very much looking forward to a better future. All of them are looking for righteousness, for true goodness. We can hunger for a lot of things in life. It's very easy just to hunger for the things that will make life a little easier, a little more convenient, a bit more time, a bit more money, a bit more rest. But Jesus says there is one hunger and thirst that marks out the repentant person, the person who has become a disciple of Jesus Christ. They hunger for righteousness. Now, when you come to this beatitude, it can be a little difficult to understand. What, what kind of righteousness is it talking about? What does it mean? You know, is it, for example, uh, the righteousness in God's sight, the rightness with God that God gives to those who trust him? Uh, when our wrongdoing is wiped away and replaced by acceptance with God, or what the Bible calls justification. 
Or is it hungering to be a person who actually does what is good and right, whose desires are full of instincts of love and kindness and gentleness and grace and persevering strength? Or a person, in other words, who is good in all the way God calls us to be good? Or is it to see righteousness in the world? In other words, to say that the evil things are done away with and things are done fairly and rightly and well. And there is peace and grace and plenty in every place. Now, down the ages, different people, different people looking at this passage have given all of those different answers. Um, I, I think it is fair to say that when Matthew uses the word righteousness in his gospel, he does nearly always mean living in a right and good way. You see that at Matthew 3.15, Jesus is baptized to, to fulfill all righteousness. It's about what he's doing. Or in Matthew 5.20, just over the page, Jesus will talk about the high call of righteousness for, for our behavior that he has. Uh, most of all, it turns up in, in verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Now, nobody is persecuted because of the way God sees them or what they long for in the world. They are persecuted because of the way they live. Um, so at the very least, this hunger and thirst includes a longing to be made right within ourselves. To be filled with love and trust and joy and peace. To be the, the whole human beings we're meant to be. I think for we shouldn't narrow it down too much. Um, because the point is that we feel a deep hunger for goodness, for rightness of every kind. And Jesus says, that will be satisfied. That will be satisfied if you come to me. And that's what fills, filled means. Totally satisfied. Like you've sat down to a good meal until you are stuffed. Jesus is saying that the longing that we might have to be made good, the longing for a world that is what it's meant to be, that is a longing that will be satisfied. Just bring your hunger and your thirst to me. As we'll begin to see next week, the life of these Beatitudes is one that leads to real good in the world. The repentance that starts with being poor in spirit and then mourns for what's wrong in the world and in ourselves is then meek and gentle towards others and hungers and thirsts for righteousness. That kind of attitude inevitably leads to a character that aims to do good and to love those around us. It deeply changes who we are. But of course it starts with that need and that awareness of our need of Jesus. Jesus is calling us to happiness, to the good life, as I said. He is calling us to the ultimately good life. And it begins with repentance. It begins with turning back on our backs and our lives our own way. Lives lived the way we think is best. The life that is the opposite of these beatitudes. Proud, rich in spirit. The life that is hard and cold and cynical when it thinks about evil. A life that's arrogant and pushy and aiming always to get its own way. A life that's filled with hungers only for the pleasures that we can get in this world. Good as they can be, they are never enough. This is the truly blessed life because it knows that God is at work. He is coming back. His kingdom, his real kingdom is at hand. It is breaking in now. It is beginning to change what life is like in this very moment, Jesus says. And ultimately, on the final day, no other kind of life 
will make sense at all. Now next week we'll see the second half of the Beatitudes, how it leads up to a life of goodness that reflects the life of God himself. But for now, let's pray.